I believe that knowing your farmer is incredibly important. You know, in, in 2020, we saw how fragile the food system was. It, it was very easily broken. Eating is pretty necessary. Our food system was fragile and is fragile, but it is necessary. And we experienced what it was like to have a fragile food system. And so the emphasis on consumers to know who their farmers are is operating above and beyond that. You know, it's resiliency in your own living. That's, yeah. that's what it means to us. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Good Dirt Podcast here on this November Friday. And I will say that in our area, this is the first week since daylight savings time ended, which means there's been a rather abrupt shift in daylight. The days are much shorter suddenly. Of course, it's been happening gradually over the last several months, but we get to this point in November where all of a sudden it's an hour earlier that darkness comes. So that takes some getting used to. So I was just reflecting on what does that mean for us on a daily basis? Emma, what does the shorter days mean for you when this happens every November? Well, I think it comes as a bit of a relief sometimes because especially at this time in the year, it's like permission to sort of turn off because I tend to work You know, I have a lot of different projects going on and I have my fingers in a lot of pots. And so I have a tendency to just sort of never stop working on things. And when it gets dark earlier, I can take that as a signal to stop and even go to bed earlier. And sometimes I even find myself getting tired earlier because of that. So that's how it affects me. I know some people have a really hard time with it because... There's just less sun in general. And for people who are, you know, maybe don't have access to a window all day, you go to work or school and then you go to school in the dark and you come out in the dark. You know, I remember I've had to do that as well. So I know it can be really hard, but personally, I welcome it as sort of an excuse to turn off, which is nice. What about you? Yeah, well, in the spirit of slow living through the seasons, there are so many things about it that I actually do love. I feel like it's kind of jarring at first, but once I get over that, like, okay, yeah, it's getting, it's dark at five o'clock. Then I settle into it and I take more time, I think, like cooking dinner, spending more time on it because normally in the summer, I want to be outside really late and I want to be outside a long time and not come in and be working in the kitchen. So this invites me indoors, invites preparing a lot of nice comfort food like soups and stews and roasts and roasted vegetables and all those kind of cold weather things. 
And like you say, getting ready for bed earlier, even feeling tired earlier. We're actually talking about these things in the Almanac this week about shifting our lives more indoors and how we can better adjust to the change in time and light and lean into the season and get the benefits of it and the joy and the comfort of it. So yeah, I think the time change combined with the colder weather also really finally brings a garden season to a close. So now I can shift to the winter projects I have to attend to. I have to go through and clear out some old papers and journals and some writing projects that I want to dig into a little bit more. So yeah, it's a real shift. Did you know that there's this thing that passed in the house called the Sunshine Protection Act this year that might, if it goes through Senate and and the president signs it, then it would actually, I want to say get rid of daylight savings time, but it's the opposite. It would keep daylight savings. It would get rid of this time change. Yes, I'd heard something about that. I really didn't know the status of it, but I was aware that this might be the last year we experience this sudden change. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Is it that on track? It looks like it. From what I can tell, it looks like it's passed in the House, needs to pass in the Senate, and then signed. So I don't know how long that stuff takes, but... Wow. So that would mean then that the shift would be more gradual, like in nature. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. So that'll be really interesting to compare that next fall and see how that feels compared to the way we've been living. As long as I can remember, there was this sudden jump back, fall back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So speaking of things ending or possibly ending, we have some exciting things happening in the marketplace. So. When we started Lady Farmer, we started as a sustainable apparel company and we designed this beautiful line of clothing and had them manufactured here in DC. And we have just a few pieces of that collection left, like really just a few. And then we partnered a couple of years later with the brand Line and Toe. And we have beautiful pieces in that collection also left, also limited. And both of us, Lady Farmer and Line and Toe, have, for this foreseeable future, decided that we're not going to continue making sustainable clothing. So this is really, this is really the last of it. And I don't know how I feel about that. I think in the past I felt kind of sad about that, but I think actually right now I'm feeling excited for what's next. And I'm really excited to make space in our marketplace for so many other amazing things and connecting you all with incredible brands and people doing really cool stuff in the sustainable living space. So in order to celebrate, we are having a huge sale on all of these beautiful garments until they run out, really. And if you're an Almanac member, you have special access starting November 11th. And then if you're not an Almanac member, this sale will open up on Tuesday, November 15th. So just keep an eye out for that. And you really don't want to miss it. This is really exciting. It's like a warehouse sale. You should have everyone over uh, and see you all in person. But we don't have the space for that. (laughs) So consider this like a a virtual warehouse sale. Really exciting. And stay tuned. Yeah. And I'll add that if you're really interested in this and you want to be in on it as soon as it opens for the Almanac members, you can always come in and join the Almanac. Your membership would be effective immediately and you would be able to get in there at the get-go. Yeah, it's a great reason to go ahead and join because we know you've been thinking about it. (laughs) Yeah, and then once you're there, you'll see how cool it is in there. So Yeah. So who have we got today, Mom? What are we talking about today? Oh, today's a really good episode. 
Today, we have Jenny Harris from White Oak Pastures, which is a regenerative farm in Bluffton, Georgia that sells grass-fed beef. But before I get too much into the intro, I want to give you, those of you out there that might not know so much about the big shift in agriculture that happened in the 20th century. Just a little bit of background because then this discussion will have much more meaning to you. But basically, you go back a hundred and something years and early 20th century agriculture took place on a large number of small diversified farms and half the people in the country worked on a farm and they utilized animals. And you know, you remember the song, Old MacDonald Had a Farm. That's the kind of farm that was around in the early 20th century, small, diversified farms in rural areas. And then fast forward 100 years and agriculture is concentrated on a very small number of large, huge farms, highly productive and specialized and mechanized commodity farms, wheat, corn, soy, and it employs only a very small share of U.S. workers and highly mechanized using tractors and machinery instead of animals. So farmers now produce on a much larger scale and consumers spend an increasingly smaller portion of their income on food. And because of all the technological innovation and changing market conditions, farming has become a much smaller player in national and rural economies. And then agricultural chemical fertilizer and pesticides begin being used increasingly. And then also the CAFOs, the famous infamous CAFOs, I'll say, the confined animal feed operations, which are industrial food factories where animals are densely packed, living in and unnatural and healthy conditions, all in order to maximize production and profit. All this started about in the mid-century. And it's no secret that these confined animal feed operations result in nutritional deficiency in the food, often tainted with the antibiotics that are used in the raising of the animals because they're in such unhealthy circumstances. And this in turn contributes to antibiotic resistance in our consumers, which is a public health problem contributes to air and water pollution. So that's just a quick overview of the big shift that took place in agriculture in the U.S. over the last century. It's a really complex and nuanced transition, and we, it's really hard to distill it down. We don't mean to oversimplify it, but there's a lot of great material on this, and there's it's just very interesting if you're interested in sort of this development. Yeah, and it sort of sets the stage for today's discussion. Right. So we get up to the mid-90s, and we have Will Harris, who is a fourth-generation farmer from the family-owned White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia. And you'll hear Jenny talk about it in the interview, but he just recognized these problems that this late 20th century industrial agriculture had been creating in the previous decades. And he decides to take his whole operation back to the days of his great-grandfather, and he goes to start using pre-industrial farming practices that had worked for centuries before all of these shifts. And he gave up chemical inputs and animal confinement farming. And he began implementing what we call regenerative farming. But, you know, it's truly, if you talk to regenerative farmers and people in the space, regenerative farming just means farming. (laughs) But we have so many different things going on now, so it's helpful to have a word for it. But today, White Oak Pastures raises 10 species of livestock, eggs, organic vegetables, and honey on almost 5,000 acres of land. And they do what they do in what they call a radically traditional way. And Jenny Harris, 
Again, as the daughter of Will Harris, she's a fifth-generation Harris family member who works at White Oak Pastures. She grew up on the farm, and she returned after college in 2010 to work there full-time as director of marketing. And today, she's here to talk to us about White Oak Pastures and how they've continued to evolve as an online source for high-quality meat while maintaining not only a commitment to land stewardship and sustainability and regenerative farming, but to their rural community as well. You'll hear all about it. And after listening to this, you might want to order one of their pasture-raised turkeys for your Thanksgiving dinner. There's still time, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and add that it's not just an online source. You can go to Bluffton and you can visit, as you'll hear her talk about in the episode as well. And Certain stores like Whole Foods carry, and Publix, I believe, if you're in the Southeast, carry white oak pastures meat. So maybe you've even bought it before or seen it in the grocery store, or maybe you've never heard of it, in which case we are so honored to introduce you to white oak pastures and Jenny Harris, of all people, who was just so much fun to talk to. And we know that you're going to love this conversation. Okay, let's get started. Here's Jenny. My name is Jenny Harris, and I am a member of the fifth generation of Harris's to live and work at White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia. White Oak Pastures is my family's farm, and we pasture raise and hand butcher 10 species of livestock on the farm. So that's grass-fed beef cattle, goats and sheep, and then pasture raise chickens, turkeys, ducks, geese, guineas, hogs, and rabbits. And that was really the way my great-grandfather farmed in the 1800s when he settled here in Early County. And it wasn't until my grandfather's generation after World War II that things really changed. Instead, a multi-species, multicultural, multi-cropped farm, he saw the value in raising a monocrop of only cattle. And so the farm really changed from really one opposite end to the other, you know, from a polycultural view to a monocultural view under my grandfather's watch. And it wasn't until my dad took over in the mid-90s that he reversed the farm back to what it was after it was first started. Today, we pasteurize lots of different species of livestock. We butcher them on the farm, and then we distribute them either to grocery stores like Whole Foods or Publix or Kroger, or directly to consumers through our online store. So you grew up on the farm. Was it always around you? And did you think you'd be an adult working on the farm, or did you want to leave? As a child, I was very involved with the farm, but less about passion for farming and more about just spending time with my dad. I'm very close. I was his shadow. And so wherever he was, whether it was his day job or on the farm, I was with him. I did not see myself living in Bluffton, Georgia. I knew very early that I was gay and I did not have an opportunity, or at least I didn't think I would have an opportunity to be personally happy knowing that I was different from everyone else around me. So I graduated from high school and left to go to Valdosta State University, which is about two hours away from the farm and with no intention of returning home. In fact, after graduation, I immediately moved to Atlanta and spent a year there thinking that, you know, everything would just fall in line for me. 
and that never happened. I really wanted the things that I couldn't have growing up, and that was to date who I wanted to date and to have a community of people like me. And I stupidly thought that community was just a sheer volume of people. I thought it was a critical mass. I thought it was just a number of people, when in reality, communities not really about how many people, it's about the things you have in common. So it didn't take me long after living in a city of over 5 million people to think, man, it's really hard to connect with people. I didn't find the community that I was really looking for. It was a lot harder than that. And so I moved back home and started working at White Oak Pastures because, ironically, I was so jealous of what was happening in Bluffton, Georgia. I was living in downtown Atlanta, but jealous of what was going on here in Bluffton. <laughs> and that was because it was just as the business was really taken off. My dad had you know, chosen at that time to integrate processing as part of our production system. And so things were moving and grooving. So I moved home. And then, of course, a year after moving home, I met my wife. That's amazing. Awesome. I love that story. That's a great story, Jenny. It's the only one I've got. (laughs) It is. It is the truth. We all have one. That's right. (laughs) Exactly right. That is so great to know your background and how you got there. It sounds like your dad took over in the 90s. And I'm guessing at that point you were a child. Yeah, I'm 36. So okay. I was born in 86. So the farm started, uh, dad started transitioning the farm slowly in the mid 90s. So I would have been 10. And I really don't remember a lot about the transition. I was not paying attention to it or the vision or the grander things. I was just a 10-year-old that wanted to spend time with my dad. You don't recall that he was talking out loud much about this within the family? I remember him telling me what grass-fed beef was and the food system and how we didn't fit in the food system anymore and how it was wrong for the land and the animals in our community. But the message was not quite as put together. We weren't moving towards regenerative agriculture. We were moving away from industrial agriculture. And moving away from something is harder to talk about than moving towards something else. The word regenerative ag had been a thing. It would have been easy for him to say, and then you do this, and then you do that, and then this will happen, and then this will come. But it was more so the opposite. We quit using chemical fertilizer on the land. We quit using subtherapeutic antibiotics on the livestock. We quit using growth hormones on cattle. And when you're moving away from something, it's a little harder to explain. So y'all were going backwards in your experience or in his mind. He was going back to what his grandfather had done. He didn't have this idea of what was going to happen 20 or 30 years later. No, he he had no clue. He talks a lot about my dad is excessive and he has an excessive personality. He thinks if a little will do a little good, a lot will do a lot of good. So the antibiotics said give two cc's per 100 pounds. He probably gave four (laughs) cc's or the chemical fertilizer said put a quart to the acre. He probably put two quarts to the acre. And so while that was excessive, what it did was it showed him the unintended consequences much sooner. Everything's okay in moderation. But he was not a moderate user. And so the 
those unintended consequences became really clear for him. And he knew that that was really not what we ought to be doing. I think he more so recognized it because he was not a user. He was an abuser. (laughs) And that recognition caused him to want to do things differently. That's the story of change for us. But we have been steadily making changes over the past 25 years. Yeah, the business looked incredibly different from a couple of years to the next couple of years. In what ways? Like what major ways stick out? You know, in the mid-90s, Dad gave up the tools that science gives us to make food production, you know, cheap and abundant. And that would have been chemical fertilizer and antibiotics, growth hormones, steroids. In uh, early 2000s, we started selling beef, not cattle. In my whole life, we sold weaned calves to confinement feeding operations to finish out. So instead of selling calves, we sold beef. In 2008, we completed the processing plant, which was a pretty novel concept. I think there were only a couple of farms in the country that were processing livestock on the farm when we built our processing plants. So it was a pretty unique situation. And that's special because you have like full control over what's happening to the animal all the way through. Is that what's so unique about it? We like it because it gives us the ability to be resilient. You know, we understand we want to grow our pork program. We plan for that for processing. We plan to process fewer cattle and process more pigs. Mm. Gives us the ability to meet any type of spec that we want to meet for a customer if it's some sort of specialty cut or whatever else. Lots of positives during COVID. One of the really terrible things that happened was a lot of farmers lost their ability to get their livestock processed. Yeah. And we did. We had full control over that process. And so it's Always been very valuable, but certainly most recently during this time of great change. Um, In 2012, we started integrating other species to the farms. I mean, hogs and sheep and goats and poultry. And 2014, we put some cabins in for people to come spend the night. We had a lot of customers that wanted to learn how their food was produced and meet people who were producing it. So we integrated lodging into the farm. In 2016, we built a general store and we didn't build it. We actually restored a probably 200-year-old building in Bluffton, downtown Bluffton, to be the retail arm for us. Bluffton has 103 people, so it's very, very rural, very, very small. But nonetheless, we have a general store. Yeah, I'm sure it's a destination. I'm sure people go. It is. It's actually a really, really neat little spot. And then in 2000, let's see, that would have been... 16. So what else have we done? The integrated food service. So we've got a restaurant on the farm. We really stepped up commerce. So now we ship packages That's you know, amazing. From directly yeah. from the farm to customers' you know, homes. So we've been busy. That's amazing. And how has your dad's excessiveness shown up in the transition? I guess it kind of sounds like his excessive ability to just try new things and throw new stuff on the business. Yes. Yeah, so he never gets mad at us unless... We fail to make a decision. He does not mind if you make the wrong decision, but you better make Mm -hmm. a decision. So his quote is seldom right, but never undecided. I think his personality has given Mm -hmm. all of us the comfort in trying new things, which is very important. But also he does not have founder syndrome. He really wants us to take control of something and run with it. And as a result, really love e-commerce. I enjoy it and I've grown it to a nice business. My younger sister loves hospitality. She's grown it into a nice business. Our director of operations, he's got a master's degree in meat science. He loves processing and he's taken processing to another level. You know, my wife loves 
crafty specialty things. So, you know, she's really developed sales for, you know, tallow skincare products and pet shoes and leather bags. You know, my brother-in-law, you know, he loves livestock. He always wanted to be a cowboy when he was little. And now he has that opportunity. Everybody's got their own area of the business that they're very passionate about and can really impact. When you said cowboy, it reminded me of Yellowstone. Have you watched Yellowstone? I have not, but everyone else in my family has. And dad's quote is, John Dutton's got more land than me, but I can kick his ass. He sure could. (laughs) That family is so toxic. I'm not trying to compare your family to Yellowstone, but I'm sure people do that a lot. Yeah, and, uh, every family's got a skeleton, yeah. so mine is different, but uh, <laughs> my, my dad is a huge Yellowstone fan. That's awesome. So it sounds like when those people you named, your sister, your brother-in-law, your wife, it sounded like you had one hire that wasn't in the family. Is that the whole staff, or are there more? No, we have uh, 175 employees. We would struggle to get the things done that we have to get done to call it a business if it was just left up to us. It sounds like your family members and your extended family members are sort of steering the ship and steering the different, everybody has their different aspect of the whole thing. I'll tell you, my dad owns 100% of White Pastures, but all of the good ideas that have happened and all of the advances that we have made have been made by non-family members. Mm-hmm. You know, the creative products that have come about, you know, were created by interns. The fact that all this livestock can live here and be healthy and live you know, good lives where they can express their instinctive behavior. Those aren't Harris's. Those are very passionate, smart people that are not local to here, or some of them are not local to here, that have come here and made real career choices to do things differently at White Oak Pastures. Speaking of doing things differently, to go back a little bit to the 90s and the early 2000s, when your dad was making such a radical transition for the time, how was this taken by the community or neighboring farmers? What kind of impact did that have? We are in agricultural country. So we either raise livestock, cotton, corn, or peanuts Mm -hmm. down here. Yeah. And commodity farmers are deeply entrenched in commodity farming. It's not like if they rode by and really liked the way our farm looked, they could just swap and start raising livestock the way we do it. A cotton picker is only a cotton picker and they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not you know, a million dollars. If a farmer that raises cotton or grows cotton wants to change and raise cattle, that cotton picker is no good anymore. Yeah. They still have to pay for it. It's a challenge for farmers to transition to a different model. Hopeful that more farmers can, but getting into farming is really complicated. It's capital intensive. There's a lot of red tape, especially with what we do. We're highly regulated with processing there's not been a huge amount of transition in farms doing more of what we do and less commodity farming around here. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that that might change in the future. Did your dad get a lot of pushback for what he was doing or did people just say, okay, you be you, Will Harris? <laughs> or how did that go? That excessive personality is paired with a lack of giving many shits of what people think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that he was necessarily seeking approval from anyone. Yeah, it is radically different from what other farms and farmers do. And I think some of them don't understand it. I think some of them think it's crazy. I think some of them think it's fine. So what do you think about, given your experience, and it's really cool that y'all have been around, like even 
before there was even a word for it. And people want to label things and all of that. But what do you think about this, I guess, method or way of farming becoming more widespread? Do you think it's possible that it can become the mainstream, that it'll beat out commodity farming? Like, What do you think that looks like? I think that whatever's going to happen is going to happen because of consumer demand. I think that it, while y'all might live in D.C., I don't necessarily think that there's going to be a tremendous amount of mm. lobbying and bills passed to support farms that do what we do. I think that if it changes, it will be because consumers demand it to change. And that's interesting that you bring up the lobbying, too, and the policy, because so much of commodity in the conventional farming is based in policy and government subsidies and stuff. That's such a good point. Yeah. I don't think that that's going to change. Yeah. I hate it. But I don't think that that will change. I think that consumers will be the reason that it changes if it changes. I will say that with the demand for grass-fed beef increasing, it's also increasingly hard for farmers to farm like we farm. It's capital intensive and you know, even we struggle to explain what we do in comparison to, you know, I don't know if y'all know this, but over 80 something percent of the grass fed beef consumed in America is imported from another country. It's not grown by American farmers. Wow. And that is such a crazy thing to think about when compared to the fact that my dad was the first farmer to sell grocery stores like Publix, American grass fed beef grown by and marketed by farmer. It's like in 20 years, it went from being this never before heard of by Publix thing to over 80% of what is available is imported from another country. That's just a really fast neck breaking pace for an industry. And it's hard for consumers to know what they're buying. An animal can live and be slaughtered in another country, but then shipped cold on a boat you know, to America, mm -hmm. cut up or ground up into ground beef and sold as a product of the USA when that animal never even drew a breath of American air. So, wow, the deck is stacked against American farmers mm. to compete in this industry because of those types of things. From what you just told us about how difficult it is for American farmers to enter this niche market because of all the overseas production. How has White Oak Pastures been able to scale your operation to this hugely widely recognized brand while still maintaining your regenerative practices? Because it's our understanding that when you scale up, sort of have to trend back and do things differently, more economically. So how did you all do it? I think we really caught it lucky with our timing. My dad was a very early innovator with integrating holistic land management and humane animal husbandry into his production system. He saw a need then for processing, but knew that processing would only fix things if he figured out access to market. So he went and found good partners that could buy the product that he wanted to sell and he could produce. And I think that 
very early forming of production, processing, and distribution gave him the ability to remake a food system, which we're still enjoying today. So I think that the vertical integration was a key piece for us. Being early innovators was a key piece for us. And with that early innovation came a live press. You know, we've been very lucky to have had some very nice press pieces that helped share the message for what we were doing in Bluffton. Namely, the Good Dirt podcast. This has really propelled you. <laughs> this is the one. This is the one I was <laughs> And so I think that we just became one of the folks that people had heard of because it was so different than what they had heard of elsewhere. Wow. I know that the first time I became aware of you guys, it was in Whole Food. And it was years ago. I think it was even before we started Lady Farmer, even before we got into this whole interest in regenerative agriculture and all that. I was in Whole Food, but my husband had been on like the keto diet. He just started this new workout thing called CrossFit and no one knew <laughs> what that was. And he had to explain CrossFit to everyone. Yeah. And at CrossFit, you ate paleo what's paleo and it was like that we had this conversation all the time people had no idea his weird diet not funny we were the same way with grass you know when my dad with his southern draw said grass fed people would look (laughs) at him and say breast fed fed?" and he was like no grass fed you know it's not explaining when you think about like standing in the middle of a grocery store explaining what grass-fed beef is while handing someone a meatball grass-fed beef, it's like, man, how was that such a not recognized thing? Yeah. Yeah. Like what are the cows supposed to eat if they're not eating grass? You know, that's, that would be what you would think, but little did they know. <laughs> right. But anyway, I was in Whole Food and I was looking for grass-fed beef because my husband was on this diet and there was this thing called grass-fed beef, whatever that meant. And it was way at the end, of, it was at this long meat counter in the Whole Food and way at the very, very end, like the last like 5% of this big long row, there it was. It said grass-fed beef and there it was. White Oak Pastures, Bluffton, Georgia. And I'm like, wow, wow, this is interesting. And I bet it takes a bigger part of the row now. No, I hope. I don't know. I hope. There's there's a lot of the imported product in there. So I don't I don't know that it does. Are you still in Whole Foods? Do you know? We're still in Whole Foods and at Publix and Croker. They were all three very early partners for us and have been great partners for us for probably over twenty years. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. What do you say when somebody tells you that they've given up eating meat, beef, because it's a major contributor to climate change. That's an interesting conversation. When someone tells me that they don't eat meat because it's a contributor to climate change, I agree. Animals raised in confinement, eating unnatural diets, doesn't seem like a good idea. Not for the animal, not for the land, not for the planet, not for the consumer. I mean, I I don't think that that type of system is one that when you get into the nuts and bolts of it, makes a lot of sense. I know why they do it, and it's because the focus on efficiency is incredible. You know, they can take huge cost out of production to make food affordable and abundant. And that part makes sense to me, but there are so many parts that don't make sense to me. I believe that animals, specifically livestock, cattle, are part of the solution. If somebody very smart, I think it was Diana Rogers, said it's the how, not the cow. Mm-hmm. And that is really well put. You know, it's like saying all cars drive too fast. Well, I mean, all cars can drive too fast, but not all cars drive too fast. Mm -hmm. And it's like saying all cows are bad for the planet. The planet evolved with animal impact. 
Jack, my son, is going through this dinosaur phase. And so we read dinosaur books every night before we go to bed. And the first dinosaurs that we know about were here something like 252 million years ago. 252 million years ago. We know that animal impact shaped this this landscape. And they stored in abundance. Nature cycles were functioning together. The energy cycle, the water cycle, the mineral cycle, the grazing cycle, all those cycles were functioning together. And it stored an abundance, which we have managed to extract that 252 million years worth of abundance in a very short amount of time. Like, a hundred years or something. You know, we think about, you know, extracting oil and water issues and depleted soil. We're not contributing to the abundance. We've used up the abundance. And it's abundance that it took a very long time to get. And it was done by animal impact. And so when people say that they don't want to support animal agriculture because they believe that it's bad for the planet, it's like saying, well, I want a world that is just like this one where I can eat, but I don't want to eat animals. Even though this world evolved with animals, I'm going to redo the world just without animals. It's like baking a cake, but not using flour and still calling it a cake. It's not a cake anymore. You know, so you're baking something else. It might be fine. It might be edible, but it's not a cake. It's, not, <laughs> it's very odd for me to hear people say that the planet's going to be better off without animals and animal impact <laughs> when the planet evolved with animals and animal impact. And, and it <laughs> evolved so well that we stored in abundance that we have enjoyed and extracted, but we've pretty much yeah. burned through a lot of it. Do you think that... It's not saying a world without animals, but a world without animals that are raised specifically for us to eat. And maybe there's a world where that's possible, but I don't understand how someone would afford to have land like me. Mm -hmm. Who's going to pay me to just have 3,000 acres of farmland with animals that just live here? How is that going to pay for itself? Yeah, that's like all this land that we're going to tie up with livestock. How do I keep paying my land taxes every year if I can't monetize? That abundance. That's yeah. what I've learned from people like Diana Rogers and Donna Go Market Garden, people like that, where it's the argument for the marketplace of the ruminant animal and that, sure, you don't have to eat it, but if there's a market for it, then it's actually so healthy and helpful on every part of that market. It's healthier for the animal, for the planet, and for the consumer. And if you just take the purpose of raising these ruminants out of it because there would be no market benefit, then maybe we're all like singing kumbaya. Also, if the argument is that eating beef is bad for the climate, and yes, that's true in terms of factory farmed, the confined animal feed operations. Yes, that's exactly true. But the way you're doing it, and increasingly more farmers, we hope, are doing it is actually the opposite is true. It's climate beneficial. Would you say that's true? I know it is. We work with Epic Provisions, which is owned by General Mills, and General Mills wanted to really understand if animal impact was regenerating good, healthy soil. And so they paid Qantas, which is a environmental outcomes of an environmental monitoring firm in Minneapolis, I believe, to come down here and do a life cycle assessment. And they did it 
It cost about $80,000. We did not pay for it. General Mills paid for it. But what it showed is that the way that we raise livestock sequesters more carbon than our cattle emit in their lives. So this type of farming is not contributing to climate change. It's upsetting climate change. Yeah. Oh, cool. This is what I want people to understand. This is the message that I think I want people to get. Because people, what can they do about climate change? You can support regenerative agriculture and you can eat grass-fed managed livestock that is climate beneficial and we have the data to prove it so i think that's just really super important and i think it's something a lot of people don't realize i'm not saying like if you don't eat grass-fed meat you're not doing your part but also to just to understand that thinking that you're if you buy a like a meat replacement product and that's better for the environment than a pound of grass-fed meat is actually literally the opposite because what went into creating that meat replacement product is more than likely almost positively much worse for the planet. Yes. Two things about that. So Qantas did a life cycle assessment on Impossible Burger and it showed that they emit 3.5 pounds of carbon for every pound of Impossible Burger that is consumed. So we're You have to eat a pound of mine to offset a pound of theirs. Amazing. Just to break even. And the data's there. Yeah. Science argue over everything, but the science is there. And the way that Impossible Burgers are made and other plant-based proteins are made is a patented process of lots of different legumes and whatever else made into a patty. The way that those grains and peas and whatever else are in it are grown are in a very industrial, commoditized farming system. It's a monocultural crop. Lots of pesticides and insecticides and chemical fertilizers are used. A lot of centralized processing. So from an environmental perspective, it's a pretty stark comparison to the way those crops are grown to the way our cattle graze. Oh, that's so interesting. Just to be clear to our listeners, I'm not saying that to help the environment, you have to eat meat. Emma's point a minute ago. I just want people to be aware that this conventional wisdom about meat being detrimental to the climate, that there is a whole another way of raising meat that is the opposite. Jenny, can you talk about the White Oak Pastures Rural Revival? Yes. So in rebuilding this food system, we ended up creating a lot of job opportunities on the farm. I mentioned we've got 175 people that work at White Oak Pastures and they're non-seasonal jobs in what was the poorest county in the state in 2020 based on household income. And so it's been a real economic boom for our area with regard to job creation and It was a real unintended consequence of raising livestock this way. It was a positive consequence, but it was it was very unintended. We brought passionate people here to work hard and work with their passion, which is raising good food, butchering it in you know small artisan quantities, and then distributing it to people who care. And as a result, our community is a destination. I mean, you said it earlier, and it is. It is a cute, quaint little town. My son is at the general store with my parents for dollar beers tonight. They're playing volleyball. And there's I just looked on the little security cameras that we have up there, and there's probably 50 people up there hanging out. 
on the Thursday night. Oh, how so, fun. <laughs> yeah. The Roaring Revival of not only our little town, but all these little ghost towns that were so negatively impacted by commoditization of agriculture could be reversed if every little town had a farm like White Oak Pastures. So have you heard the term slow living? I've not. Okay. So, you know, like slow food. Mm -hmm. So there's slow food, there's slow fashion, which is ethical, sustainable fashion. So those two have been taken to mean that so people who are in this like lifestyle consider themselves slow living enthusiasts. So slow living, from what you know, from what I just told you, doesn't necessarily mean speed, right? Or it can mean whatever you want to mean. But given the very little context I just gave you, I'm curious what slow living means to you. So I was on the board of Slug Food Atlanta many, many moons ago, and I have a really good grasp of what slow food is. If I had to describe slow living, it would be living in the moment, very guilty of checking email and whatever else while I'm, you know, at home. But I would imagine that if I was embracing slow living, I would not do that. Enjoying the moment, which there are a lot of moments that I enjoy. That's how we think it is. We like to hear what other people think. You grasped the essence of it. You did. Yes, of course you did. So as you know, this podcast is called The Good Dirt. So we like to ask all of our guests, so what does good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that either literally or metaphorically. Yeah, for me, good dirt is soil that's teeming with life. It's full of microbes that are exchanging what they need with what they have to build strong, healthy plants to then be grazed by strong, healthy livestock. To me, good dirt is the base and foundation for everything that comes next. If it doesn't start with the soil, what does it start with? Yes, thank you. And there's a quote on your website I'd love to hear you talk about. It's, I think it's something your dad has said. If there ever was a time to know your farmer, it is now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. If there ever was a time to know your farmer, it's now, is rooted in what we experienced on the food production side of the pandemic. Everybody was touched by the pandemic. Everybody has their pandemic stories. But we were in a really unique spot as food producers when the true panic of needing foods set in. It was like in March, we weren't exactly sure what COVID was, but oh my gosh, everybody's scared. We're not going to be able to go to work. Oh gosh, if we're not able to go to work, what about these essential jobs like food production? Oh my gosh, if they can't go to work and make food, how am I going to get food? And it was like there was a, a very short amount of time when the people were trying to figure out what COVID was to, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm not going to be able to eat. You know, there's no food in my grocery store. I mean, we all felt the ripple effects. But for us, knowing your farmer is the traceability of food and the relationship that we have as food producers to take care of our community. And during the pandemic, we obviously sell products through our website, but also to grocery stores, but specifically with our e-commerce sales. We were not able to identify our longtime customers from these new panicked people that stumbled upon whiteoakpastures.com. And so we sold out of everything that we had for months. I mean, month after month after month. If we put new inventory in, we'd sell that inventory within hours. Just the e-commerce business tripled in size in 2020, just because of you know, people not being sure where they were going to get their food. And for us, we've since 
rolled out a loyalty program that allows us to understand and know who those people are who have continued to support us over time. They're marked as such in our customer management software. But I believe that knowing your farmer is incredibly important. The food system as we know it is as fragile as it is. And it is. You know, in, in 2020, we saw how fragile the food system was. It, it was very easily broken. Eating is pretty necessary. I don't know about y'all, but when I hang up on this, I'm going to get something to eat. <laughs> I don't think that we want the words fragile and necessary in the same sentence. <laughs> we had the words fragile and necessary in the same sentence. Our food system was fragile mm. and is fragile, but it is necessary. And we experienced what it was like to have a fragile food system. And so the emphasis on consumers to know who their farmers are is operating above and beyond that. Who are you going to get your refund from? How are they going to do it? You know, it's resiliency in your own living. That's, yeah. that's what it means to us. Such a good point. Yeah. Just curious, has your e-commerce tripled and has it stayed there or did it taper off? So we went from, we tripled and we're back down probably, I would say we've lost maybe 20%, 30% of the people who just stumbled upon us and found us right. in the pandemic. But we were able to keep 60 or 70%. Yeah those people. So amazing. It's, it's still a really nice part of the business and a part of the business that we're continuing to focus on and grow. That's amazing. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to my next question, which wrapping up, do you have anything else you want to tell the audience or how they can get meat from you if they can, or how they can contribute to White Oak, or if they can come visit and do a farm stay, or how can they get more Ginny Harris? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they want more Ginny Harris, but White Oak Pastures is something everybody should want a piece of. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we'd love to have people on the farm. We've got a general store and cabins with a restaurant. That would be a lot of fun to meet those people and to give us a chance to know them and them a chance to know us. For those that live you know, too far to travel or just can't make it happen. We've got a pretty good website, whiteoakpastures.com. And there you can learn about, you know, everything from production to processing to distribution and even place an order for us to ship you. Amazing. How far are you from Atlanta, Jenny? 180 miles south of Atlanta. We're going to come see you all. Yeah. That just sounds like so much fun. Yeah, we'd love that. If we happen to air this episode before Thanksgiving, which might happen, is there, if people are thinking about getting stuff for Thanksgiving, is, is there a date that you recommend people order by or what that's going to look like? So we are currently pre-selling our Thanksgiving turkeys and those will be available through our online store. We'll ship those turkeys the week before Thanksgiving. So anything that you purchase with the hopes of consuming for Thanksgiving, place it a little before the week before Thanksgiving okay. so we can get okay. it shipped to you. Cool. This has been a pleasure. This has been really fun. It was so fun to talk to you. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And we really, really thank you for your time. I know you're we super busy it. and we appreciate it. And our audience is going to love this. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to tell y'all and everybody else about what we do at Wadded Pastures. Oh, they're going to love it. Thank you so much, Jenny. Have a good rest of your night. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. 
That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye. Goodbye.